All right, let's look at the Bible. We're in John's Gospel, and we're studying chapter 8, which is an amazing chapter, and I can't move quickly through it, unfortunately. I know, I know you want me to. It's just so rich. There's so much here. Let me say a prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the beloved disciple John who knew Jesus so well and in his later years sat down to write all of these things that he remembered with a definite purpose to bring us to faith. And we thank you for all that he gives us here. And we pray that you'd help us to be attentive and understand the things he asked to share, Father, to, for us in Christ's name. All right, you know, when we talk about human nature, I think of a lot of wonderful things when we talk about human beings. Uh, human beings are marvelous. So far above the animals, there's no comparison. We have so many faculties that no cre other creatures on earth have. It's almost like we came from a different place. We reason, we create, we put complex thoughts into words, we make music, we do art, we ponder good and evil, we think about justice and truth and discuss those things. We're, we are amazing, but we don't come from, from someplace else. We don't come from someplace else. God made all that we see in this world, including us. We are amazing because he made us special. We're amazing because he made us in his image. We are micro versions of God's personhood. Scientists say, you know, that they've cataloged, I looked it up because I, I was just curious what the current rate is because it's happening all the time. How many species of animal life there are on earth? There's 1.2 million species of life that they have come up with on earth that they've cataloged. That, that would fill a lot of books, but only human beings are made in the image of God. That's why we're so far above them. We're so different. All of our superior qualities that seem alien compared to all other life is the gift of God to humanity. It's the gift of being made in the image of God. He reasons, we reason. He creates, we create. He is just, we understand justice. He is moral, we have moral. We can't help but think morally, right and wrong. We can't help but do that. I've still not met a human being who only talks in terms of useful and not useful, especially if you wrong them. That's wrong. People don't get mad and say, that's not useful. I mean, some things aren't useful, and they might say that, but right and wrong. We all have some standards of right and wrong. Animals don't even think that way. They can't. They don't have those capacities. So all of these superior qualities are the gift of the divine image in us. We are not gods, but we are like God in that he made us in his image. He made a special sharing with us important attributes that he has. Now, if you think about human nature, there's a problem too, right? We're marvelous, we're wonderful, but there's a problem. We are profoundly corrupt. Corruption such as can only be explained by the perversion and the misuse of these wonderful gifts that God has given to us. 
How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, the first three chapters of the Bible explain all of it. The first thing we find out in Genesis chapter 1 is that we're all made in God's image. All human beings are made in the image of God. And then if you get to chapter 3, we used our gifts that he gave us to rebel against him, to turn away from him. That thoroughly wrecked us. It wrecked humanity. The great Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle said, the corruption of human nature is no slight thing. It is no partial skin-deep disease, but a radical and universal corruption of man's will, intellect, affections, and conscience. Yes. Yes to that. I am Exhibit A. Uh, you are Exhibit B, C, D, and E. <laughs> It's true of all of us. These great biblical truths that are given to us in the beginning of Scripture about how marvelous we are and how corrupt we are are the clearest. Well, you know, if you think about it, what are the doctrines of the Christian faith? And can you prove them? Well, those I can prove because it's so clear and it's abundant always, everywhere. We are almost a completely different order of creature than all the other animals on the earth because we're infinitely above them, really, in terms of capacities. Our abilities were completely different and were corrupt. Those are two easiest to demonstrate doctrines of the Christian faith because they're right in front of us all the time. In fact, even if you're all alone, they're with you. You know that. You're not everything you should be and you're marvelous at the same time. Why? The Bible is the only book that tells you the answer to that question. You'd have to be blind not to see it. Now, blindness is one of the effects of the fall, spiritual blindness. So some people don't see it. They won't acknowledge it anyway. But we have all the evidence we need. So I think people ignore it because that very corruption in us refuses to acknowledge God's truth. So we, we resist that. So some people put us on the same plane as animals to get away from that. And other people simply won't acknowledge that they have any corruption at all. That that's just normal. And that's really the subject of chapter 8, everything we're talking about. This lengthy dialogue between Jesus and the people in the great temple in Jerusalem. So we've been looking at it for a couple weeks here. The, the dialogue in chapter 8 shows us once again how fallen human nature is, how corrupt human nature is. And it reveals the blindness of spiritual leadership that was going on in the first century amongst the Jewish leaders in the temple. They, they had so many advantages from people in the rest of the world. So many, they really did. The scriptures, they had the Bible, they had God's own word. They had the history of Israel and God's working with them. They had examples of faithful men throughout that history, great heroes of the faith, and many, many prophecies, glorious promises from God that they could own and hang on to if they wanted to. But when God actually moved in fulfillment of those promises in their very day, first through John the Baptist and then through Jesus himself, the so-called spiritual leaders of Israel pushed back, I mean hard. They hated John, they didn't trust him, and they hated Jesus even more. And it's because the Judaism they had constructed was built on the wrong foundation and was looking for the wrong thing. Their religion was built on external conformity to man-made rules. And you add into that this sort of nationalistic fervor, this desire 
to kick off the Romans and be this great nation again on, on a kind of a very human level. It, it was a perversion of, of the faith based on their own human failings. Pride in self-righteousness were the centers of their faith. And that kept them from seeing God at work in their midst because God was interested in saving them and they weren't interested in being saved. They were interested in their own reputations and their own exaltation. So John the Baptist came and he was outside of the system they created. He was doing his own thing and they would not acknowledge his legitimacy even though thousands and thousands of people came to him and recognized that he was a prophet. The, the average Jew thought John the Baptist was a prophet. But if you talk to the leadership, well, I don't know, maybe. Then Jesus came and John said he was the son of God. And Jesus did incredible miracles he was also outside the system. Jesus never sought the approval of the rabbis, never went to the leadership. He didn't go to the high priest and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. We thought you might want to be on my team. <laughs> he, didn't, he, he didn't worry about that. He just ministered and did all the things he was supposed to do and let them react. Jesus made very bold claims, messianic claims, yet only few, just a few in Israel's leadership even considered those claims or believed in him at all or supported him. In fact, they sought to kill him almost right away. The first time he came to the temple, John chapter 2, and cleaned house. Remember that? They didn't like him after that at all. We saw in John chapter 5, verse 18, they wanted him dead. This is what it says, John 5, 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, here in chapter 8, all these things are behind what's driving this conversation. Jesus is back in the temple again. It's several years later than when he first arrived there. It's getting pretty close to the crucifixion. All that's going on. They can't seem to seize him. They want to grab him and arrest him, and it doesn't seem to be working out, and the Bible just says his hour had not yet come. So whatever God was doing to keep that from happening, he was doing it well. <laughs> being God. So they can challenge him though, so they go challenge him publicly. They interact with him, they go while he's preaching in the temple, they ask him hard questions, they give him a hard time. And last time we gained really important insight into what's wrong with these leaders from what Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 23. He explains why they can't accept him. And yeah, part of it's due to their religious system that they developed, but that's just an expression of this fundamental spiritual problem that all of us start with, that all of us have. We're separated from God. We go our own way. Isaiah says, the great prophet Isaiah, we wander like sheep, right? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. That's the way Isaiah described it. And it's so true. Personal rebellion against the true God. Idolatry in the heart. Whatever we want more than God, we make that our God. Whether it's a God figure or just stuff we want to do more than him or sins that we like that he forbids, whatever the thing is. And all of that, this, this uh, personal rebellion leads to systems of rebellion like religions, cultures, cultures of sin, cultures of religion, and in some cases even religion that claims to have a root in the Bible, just like it's going on in the first century here in, in Jerusalem. It goes astray. Why? 
Well, Jesus tells us why in verse 23 of chapter 8. He was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, Jesus was born into this world. He grew up in this world. He worked in this world as a carpenter, a laborer, a construction guy. He was of this world, but that's not what he's talking about. He was in this world, but not of this world. He was from heaven. He was incarnate as a human being, and he did not participate in the wickedness of the world. He was a regular guy who lived a perfect, holy life. Never coveted, never lusted, never took advantage of anyone, never cheated. Humans are earthbound in their thinking. That's when he says you are from below. They, they think down here. Even if they're religious and say a lot of prayers, their motivations, their, their thinking is earthbound. That's what he's saying about that. These wonderful gifts that we've been given, the soul, the capacity for worship, the ability to be thankful, to have gratitude, to, to love, to be moral, to have moral thinking, all that got broken and twisted. Jesus is God become man in the midst of a lost and broken humanity. And he came to save us. He came from above. And he came down below because we need to be reconciled to God. So he warns these religious leaders, skip on down to verse 24, therefore I said to you, so he says, you're from below, I'm from above, you're of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, because that's true, I said to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, or I am he, you will die in your sins. He's giving them counsel. He's warning them. It's a helpful warning. You stand before God as a sinner. You don't want to show up on Judgment Day in those terms. So he's telling them, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe, faith in Jesus is the only way to face God in judgment. You must believe, he says, that I am or I am he. The Greek word, we talked about that last time. Two words, ego a ni, I am. You must believe that I am. And that's actually God's name in the Old Testament, I am. But you can also just translate it, I am he. That's typically what it means in a sentence. Some Bibles translate it differently, but... That's where we stopped last time in verse 24. So let's pick it up in verse 25 with a question. It's not a question that inspires confidence that the people he's talking to are finally getting it. Here it is. They asked Jesus, verse 25, who are you? I think you should say it a little more like this. Who are you? You know what I mean? A little more dismissive, derisive. It's not like an honest question like, well, who are you? I mean, he's been telling them over and over and over. They know who he claims to be. So this is more like a who do you think you are? Kind of who are you? And he answers this way. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? You want to know who, know who I am? What have I been saying? Have you been listening? That's what he's asking. So he's pointed to his divine nature all along. In fact, if you go back to chapter 5 for a second, the last time he was in the temple, that's when he healed the, the lame man. Who is he? Chapter, chapter 5, verse 22. I just want to go back and reestablish what he already had said to them. 
John 5.22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. That's who I am. I'm the judge. Verse 23, so that, here it comes, so the Father has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Equal, equal honors to the Son. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Son of Man is a messianic title. That's, that's who he is. So the Father gives to the Son tasks and responsibilities that only God can do. What other being can judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of billions of people? Only God can do that. And the Son is God. So he does that too. The Father intends also for the Son to have equal honors with the Father. He's given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So that's John 5. And that was months before this, some months before John chapter 8. Now, let's go back to chapter 8. Here at this feast, at this visit to the temple, Jesus says, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. So he's already said that. I am the light of the world. So if they say, well, who are you? It's not like they, he hasn't told them in all kinds of detail. He's not hiding and he's not that subtle either. And this claim to be the light of the world is what starts this discussion we're sort of in the middle of about where Jesus is from and the Father sent him into the world. That is what Jesus means when he says he came from above. He came from heaven. He's pre-existent. He's an eternal being. He's become incarnate as a human being. He's telling them that all along and it's time for them to take seriously who he really is. So verse 26 of chapter 8, Jesus gets right to the point. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. So here in verse 26, Jesus claims the right to judge them. To evaluate and to tell them exactly where they stand with God. And what they need to do to be right with God. He's taking that all on himself. And he, he says speaking to them. He talks about, I have many things to speak and to judge. Speaking is a big part of this section here. He mentions that twice in verse 26, once in verse 28, and then verse 38, him speaking. He's giving knowledge, truth to them. He has a lot to say, he says. And where does Jesus of Nazareth get that information? Where, where does he get what he's saying? Where does it come from? It comes from the Father. It comes from God the Father. He is God's mouthpiece. He is God's wisdom. He is the authority of God. And amazingly, those listening, these human authorities of Israel, they just don't seem to catch on about what he's talking about. They didn't get it. 
This time in verse 26, Jesus said, he who sent me, he's talking about that. So verse 27, it says, I'm sorry, let's go look at verse 27. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Oh, who are you talking about? So in verse 26, Jesus said, he who sent me, and talks about the things I have heard from him. So who sent him? And where is he getting the things that he heard from? So that's where they say, well, who are you? So he didn't say Father in those sentences right there, but he's called God the Father all along. That's why they're mad at him. In fact, it was really calling God his Father that made them want to kill him originally. We saw that in chapter 5. They, they did perceive that doing that, calling God his Father, made himself equal with God. Do you remember that? We studied that together. Jesus was in trouble for healing that man on the Sabbath, right? And they got all angry about that. And that's in chapter 5. And Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. I myself am working. God works on the Sabbath, so I'm working on the Sabbath. Remember that? And they freaked out. And in chapter 5, verse 18, it says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. To them it was blasphemy, pure blasphemy, worthy of death. So instead of bow the knee to the person that did this incredible healing, and who is claiming this relationship with God, instead of bowing to that, they want to kill him. But this time they don't really quite pick up on it being the father that he's talking about because he didn't use that word yet. Who's he talking about? Who are you? Well, Jesus decides at this point in chapter 8 to tell them exactly who he is, the source of what he has to say to them, and amazingly he tells them how they can know that I am he. He's going to tell them that. Verse 28. So Jesus said, this is really interesting. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So he's bringing the Father in now. The He, the Who, the Him, that's the Father. So he's saying it again, clear as can be. This is a pretty amazing sentence here, verse 28. Son of man again, that's the messianic title straight out of Daniel chapter 7. Everybody would know what that meant. That's one thing. And then he says, when you lift up the son of man, what's that a reference to? Does that mean carrying him on their shoulders like an Olympic athlete? Hey, Jesus. No, it's not what it means to lift up. We saw it in chapter 3. Do you remember chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that was a bronze serpent they'd made, to, and they put it on a stake, and they raised it up real high. So people, when they looked at it, they would be healed. Remember that? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So the lifting up is talking about the crucifixion. That's his, that's his language for that. Now in verse 28 here, Jesus says, no one will understand until after 
But the crucifixion is where the sins of mankind are atoned for, where salvation is being provided for human beings. And whoever believes in Jesus will receive the benefits of his sacrifice on the cross. So Jesus tells his audience of Jerusalem men that once he dies on the cross, they will know. They will know what? Well, he says, I am he, or I am. They will know that I am. They will know that he was indeed sent by the Father, having fulfilled the task that God gave him by the Father, and he only speaks what the Father gives him to say. That's what he's telling them. They will know once he is lifted up, once he's been on that cross, they will know who he is. Think about how amazing it is just to say that. Because in the normal course of life, in the Roman world, in his day, a brutal crucifixion would not confirm that you're the son of God. Right? Oh yeah, he's dead on a cross. They tortured him to death. That shows it. All that would show is that he's a villain, a, a false prophet, a deceiver, a, 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 a man accursed. That's what that shows. You certainly wouldn't see a man tortured like that and say, that's God's man right there. Well, what actually did happen when he was lifted up? Well, quite the opposite reaction, really. So I, I started thinking about that, you know, all the events that transpired at the crucifixion and then afterwards, so that they could know exactly who he was, right? What actually did happen? Think about that day. What happened is the crowd watched him being slowly tortured to death. His enemies laughing at him and mocking him. Come down from that cross. Mark chapter 5 verse 32. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They're even saying they'll believe if he comes down. But Jesus says the crucifixion itself is how they'll know. That's so interesting. About three hours in, at noon, Mark tells us that darkness fell over the whole land. It's noon, and it became black as night. Three hours later, Jesus died. He gave up his spirit. Matthew says, when that happened, the moment Jesus gave himself up to the Lord, and his body, his spirit left his body, Matthew says, the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So for one thing, this unusual darkness comes across the whole land. And then the moment he dies, there's an earthquake. And I don't know if you know about the temple, you know, there's several parts to the temple. There's only priests can go into what's called the holy place. And then there's this big, thick curtain in front of the Holy of Holies, which only one priest, the high priest, can go into once a year. Other than that, nobody's ever allowed in there. And there's this big, thick curtain. And the moment Jesus died, it just tore in two. Well, maybe that was a result of the earthquake. Maybe. The timing, though. <laughs> Pretty amazing, right? What did those curtains represent? You cannot approach God except through a priest, except through sacrifice. And Jesus was the true sacrifice. So when he died for you, that curtain was torn. 
and access to God is directly provided for you. You don't need a priest. He is the priest and his sacrifice is sufficient for you. Who would have witnessed the darkness? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone that was there would have witnessed that. Who would have felt the earthquake? Everyone. Everyone in Jerusalem at that time. Who would have known that the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn in two? Who would have known that? The priests would have known that. The first time a priest went in there to offer something, the usual holy place stuff without going into the Holy of Holies, it, he would have found it torn and that would have been the biggest news throughout the priesthood in Jerusalem entirely. Could some of the people Jesus is talking to in verse 8 have been there? Probably. These are leaders in Jerusalem we're talking about. Priests and Pharisees and rabbis and theologians at a feast and Jesus died on a feast day and Passover. They all would have been there. So they would have seen or heard about all of that and even heard a Roman officer standing right in front of Jesus as he died there saying truly this man was the son of God. They would have heard that too. Anyone who was at the crucifixion. Luke tells us Luke 23:48 he says all the crowds who came together for this spectacle. It was a big event, the crucifixion. Jesus being at trial, Jesus being carrying his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the place of execution. Thousands and thousands of people were there. He was the most well-known person in Israel and he's being crucified. And they all came and all the religious leaders came to watch and mock him. So he says all the crowds came together for this spectacle when they observed what had happened, when they observed what had happened, the darkness, the earthquake, the Roman soldier, all the things around it, all the things surrounding it, Jesus forgiving people from the cross. They began to return beating their breasts. Now beating your breast in that culture was a, a way to say grief and sorrow and repentance. That's what that meant. They were feeling horrible about what had just happened. Deep contrition. There's even more than that. So after the crucifixion was done and they pulled Jesus' body down or when they were taking the bodies down off the soldiers, a member of the great council, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, Joseph of Arimathea, asked Pontius Pilate for Jesus' body, prepared it and took it and laid it in his own tomb. Who would have known about that? Everybody. Everybody would have known. That kind of word gets out. So some of those standing before Jesus in John chapter 8, which is about six months before the crucifixion, would have eventually been witnesses to these great events. And even more people beyond them would have heard about these events. Perhaps then a number of them at that time would indeed have understood. He is from above and we are from below. That he is the I am. That, he, that God did send him. God did speak through him. They would have started to understand. Others would have just at least pondered it all. Well, how could all of this have happened if he wasn't who he said he was? They would have thought about it. 
Following the crucifixion, a lot more happened in Jerusalem just over the next few months. Of course, on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. That was not a public event. It was only seen by a few people. But he spent 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven, and only a few people saw that. But 10 days after that, the day of Pentecost was there, another feast, and the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' disciples, and Peter preached to this large crowd of people in Jerusalem, and the disciples were speaking in their own languages. There were people there from all over the world, all over the Roman world, to worship there. Jews came from all the colonies of Jews all over everywhere, and they could hear the apostles preaching in their own language. And Peter preached this epic sermon, and he concluded the message with this, Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter's message hit the mark. In fact, it says in Acts 2.37, the next verse, it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent, and let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us in verse 41, So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So Peter preaches this sermon, 3,000 people come to Christ. Of those 3,000, how many of them might have been there at the Feast of Tabernacles six months before and heard Jesus saying this conversation? Some of them might have been there. Some of them might have been there. We're not done yet. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches another sermon in Jerusalem and gets in a lot of trouble. And that shows up in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Where it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. This church is growing. That's one way to grow your church. 5,000 more people came to Jesus. Then in chapter 5 of, of Acts, the apostles are dragged before the great council itself, the Sanhedrin, the body of the leading priests and the leading theologians of Israel. And the high priest yells at them in chapter 5 of Acts, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and it intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so Peter stands up and says in answer, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then it says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council. Yeah, Gamaliel, he's known even outside the Bible. He's one of the great rabbis of the day. 
He warns the council not to be hasty and condemn those men because they may indeed be serving God. He just says, hey, we shouldn't take a, make a decision about these guys. Let's just leave them alone because if, if, they're, if, if they're not of God, it's going to fade out anyway. And if they are of God, we'll be guilty of doing something really horrible. So he talks them out of it. Then in Acts chapter 6, we're told, Acts 6 verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And then it has this wonderful little line. And a great many of the priests, the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A great many priests put their faith in Jesus. Could some of them have been at the Feast of Tabernacles since six months before and heard this conversation we're talking about in John chapter 8? See how many opportunities they had when Jesus was lifted up? to know that he really was who he claimed to be and how many actually came to that conclusion and gave their lives to Christ? I think so. So the lifting up, the lifting up of Jesus, his cruel death on the cross did not reveal Jesus to be a maniac or a malefactor or out of his head or a wild-eyed preacher who came to a bad end. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. That was the case. He spoke the truth. And many, many, many people came to know it. Many of the people standing there then that didn't believe it came to believe it. F.F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar, he wrote, Jesus came into the world to reveal the Father. And He revealed Him most fully in his death on the cross. It's true. But the cross wasn't the end. It was the beginning of salvation for untold millions and millions of people who believe that Jesus is God come in human flesh to carry the burden of our sin. He showed the love of God in this world, in person. And that assures our place in another world, the world above where Jesus came from. And he said, we can go there to be with him in glory if we just put our faith in him. And the words of Jesus don't end with John 8:28 either, if you're still there in that passage. He says one more thing. It's really a beautiful thing. Well, one more thing we're going to look at today. Before John tells us the response to Jesus, he, he tells us that Jesus said this. Verse 29. He who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So there's Jesus confessing his own sinlessness. Not boastfully, he's just telling them who he is. And who sent him? It was the Father. And the Father has not left him alone. I don't think there's any verse that captures the relationship between the Father and the Son incarnate quite like this one does. The Father is always with the Son. He's always with him. And Jesus is always aware of the Father's presence. And Jesus always does what the Father wants him to do. And if you think about that, and if you think about the cross and what you know about the cross, it makes that cry that Jesus gave out from the cross when he was first being crucified, it makes it all the more heartbreaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when you read verse 29 in chapter 8, and then think about how he felt on the cross. 
The Father's always with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is suffering for us at that very moment. He is feeling the weight of our sin. He's being abandoned by God as we will be abandoned if we choose to die in our sins and not have a savior to look out for us. The son had to feel the abandonment of people, the very abandonment that people will feel when they die that don't want him. They'll die as sinners without a savior. So Jesus' perfect fellowship with the Father was broken at that moment of his greatest suffering. Abandonment was part of the wrath of God that he had to endure for us. But you know what? Even in those moments, even when he made that cry, he didn't lose his trust in God. He didn't doubt. He's just crying our cry. If you want to know what Jesus was thinking and feeling on the cross, Read Psalm 22, because it's very detailed. A thousand years before Jesus lived, his ancestor David wrote that psalm, seeing in his mind's eye the crucifixion of Jesus a thousand years later, and wrote down what it was like to be Jesus from the cross's point of view. Read Psalm 22, because you'll see the, dis- the horror of what it's like to be tormented, the agony, the the loss, the humiliation. And yet, he says in that psalm that he trusts in the Father. He trusts in God. So even through all of that, he trusted. So you see agony, loss, humiliation, and perfect trust. It's amazing. Well, we started this morning talking about a man's, mankind's brokenness, our fallen condition, our love for sin, choosing gods of our own making, and Jesus opened the door to restoration with God. He made forgiveness a reality and reconciles us to the Father. And you might be surprised to learn that some of those who heard Jesus in John 8 had their hearts touched and began to believe Jesus was sent from God right on that same day while Jesus is talking that he was the promised one. So chapter 8, verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Right there. Now, part of me wishes that John chapter 8 just stopped there. Because that's such good news that these people believed in him. The di- but what happens is, unfortunately, is the dialogue turns really nasty. Really nasty. Right after that. Right after verse 30. Nasty, but in a wonderful way. What could be wonderful about Nasty. Well, if any place in Scripture clearly affirms the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he actually is God, the great I Am, it's in John chapter 8, the second half, which we'll look at next time. That's right. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord God, the Savior always honored you in all that he did. And we know you only because of him. So may our hearts be forever and always thankful for him. And may we indeed live in his light. We pray in his name. Amen.